the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Comet and Ice Planet Polka hits number one in the charts with a bullet. Grandiose plank constants and weathertop encounters with doom. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope this time in part one of a two-part interview discussing A Call to Vengeance, their great new entry in the Manticore Ascendant science fiction series set in David Weber's Honorverse. It's about 300 years before Honor Harrington's time. It's a wide-ranging, good-humored discussion with lots of insight and fun, so stay tuned for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Lee Aiden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Now here's the news. The eyes have it with the March mass markets. That's because our two mass markets debuting this month are Angel Eyes by Michael Z. Williamson and Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler. One is science fiction and the other fantasy, so it's a binocular vision bonanza of wonder and adventure. All in favor, say aye. You know, E-Y-E, okay, I'll cut this out. At Booksellers Now is Angel Eyes, a new entry in Michael Z. Williamson's Freehold series. Angie never planned to be a spy. She was a veteran of the Freehold Forces of Grain and was now a freighter crew woman who hadn't set foot on the dirt of a world in ten years. Angie was free, and that was the way she liked it. Then the war with Earth started. One thing Angie knew was human space. She knew where the UN troops garrison, the methods they used to scan and ship their own to control them. Even better, she had a mental map of the access conduits, the dive bars, and the makeout cubbies people used to get around restrictions. The UN forces may hold most of the stations, the docks, and the jump points, but now the freehold of grain has its own lethal weapon. The intelligence branch sends a freighter crewed with blazers, special forces troops, and all Angie has to do is lead them through the holes. Responsibility for the explosion and wreckage should be theirs, but war is complicated, and even the most unwilling of heroines can be forged in its crucible. Also out in March is Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler. Sarah Calhoun is the 15-year-old daughter of the elector Andrew Calhoun, one of Appalachia's military heroes and one of the electors who gets to decide who will next ascend as the emperor of the new world. None of that matters to Sarah. She has a natural talent for hexing and one bad eye, and all she wants is to be left alone, especially by outsiders. But Sarah's world gets turned on its head at the Nashville Tobacco Fair when a Yankee wizard priest tries to kidnap her. Now, if Sarah cannot claim her heritage, it may be the end to her and her family and to the world, where she is just beginning to find her place. Angel Eyes by Michael Z. Williamson and Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. Part two of the interview will be available next time on the podcast. Well, welcome David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope to the podcast. Hello, fellas. Hi. Hello. Hi, Tony. 
David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse, within which that series is set. David has many New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 8 million David Weber books in print. Timothy Zahn is a Hugo Award winner and author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Heir to Empire, and many other Star Wars books as well. And uh, he is, of course, the author of the Cobra series here at Bain, born in Chicago. He earned a BS in physics from Michigan State and MS in physics from the University of Illinois. Bain published his popular Cobra trilogy in one volume. Tim continued the series with his Cobra War trilogy and the Cobra Rebellion series, which just finished up. His other popular series include the Conqueror and Dragonback novels, and Tom, Tom Pope, is the founder of View 9, a collection of professionals assisting David Weber in defining and documenting the Honorverse. Tom serves as lead editor for House of Steel, which is uh, the Honorverse companion, and is collaborating with David and Timothy Zahn on the books that we are talking about today, the Manticore Ascendant series. Tom also works with robots at uh, Carnegie uh, Mellon University. Is that correct? That's right, Tom. That is, that is correct. In fact, I just got back from a competition. Ah, cool. And out now at Booksellers, uh, I could mention many other David Weber series as well, but uh, let's just get on with uh, with talking about Manticore Ascendant. Out now at Booksellers is the third entry in the Manticore Ascendant series, which is A Call to Vengeance by David Weber and Timothy Zahn with Thomas Pope. So, we open the book with an inquest, and our main character, Travis Long, is in the dock. What has gone on before? What's up with this? Is Travis in trouble? Well, a little bit, yes, but it's more a matter of other people are are in trouble, and they're bringing Travis in to try to hang them. Historically, we are on the brink of the discovery of the Manticore and Wormhole Junction. By Manticore. The bad guys already know something's out there. Um, so that's where it sits in the history of the Star Kingdom. Um, in the history of the evolution of the Navy, this book is actually, I think, more critical than the two that came before. Tom and Tim, you know, uh, check me out on this. But this yeah, is the agreed. point at which the Mantis are really beginning to understand how little they understand about building a modern Navy. Yes, I would agree with that. And what? And they has, better uh, figure it out because they're about to go from being Denmark to being the British Empire. <laughs> what does it mean to discover the wormhole junction? I mean, what does that even mean within the context of the series? I mean, the wormhole is going to be the linchpin of Manticoran economic domination for the, the next hundreds of years. Um, and yeah. they have no idea, really, at this point in time, there's only been five, seven or eight of them discovered. So you know, people are still just just understanding how much it's going to change commerce and travel yeah. and, and warfare in the universe. Yeah, Tom is our, is our um, keep us all sane guy while we're working on this in terms of where we are and what's happening. Tom, check me on this. Has there been a successful wormhole transit at all at this point? Yes. Or are Manticore we still in the about, okay, there has been. Yeah, yeah. There's there have been there have been a handful at this point, but not very many. I think okay. uh, less than a dozen at this point in time. Okay. So and the, how do so, people get around in the, the I mean there is faster than light travel, right? Through in yeah, space as you yeah. you guys call it. Yes. Hyperspace. But it's uh well there's slow. age space which is hyperspace and normal space which is in space. And in uh, space really exists. Hyperspace is maybe a little more doubtful. Um but yeah, the difference is that 
the maximum apparent velocity that you can obtain in in uh, hyperspace. It still takes uh, about a month to travel from Manticore to the Sol system. Uh, by using the wormhole junction, you can make the trip in less than a week because it connects to a star only 40 light years from Earth as opposed to being 600 light years from Earth. And the wormhole transportation is effectively instantaneous. So it's kind of like it's kind of like Manticore finds itself living next door to the Panama Canal, which connects to the Suez Canal, which also connects to the Cape of Good Hope, and which also con uh, connects to the Straits of Magellan. It's it's that's the kind of centrality to the 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 transportation nexus of the galaxy this wormhole constitutes. Um, it's the biggest in known space. It connects all around the periphery of the explored zone. And there are other wormholes out there that can tie into it to, to produce this entire huge sprawling network of, boy, we can get there a lot faster kind of thing. So the stakes are, are huge in this series. Oh, yeah. Um, who is um, who's Travis Long? I mean, when we first met him, he wasn't even an officer in the RMN. Well, when we first no, met he him, was he was just a recruit. Yeah, yeah he was a recruit. When we first met him, he was uh, hanging out in bad ring. company. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing that I love about Travis, but there are a lot of things to like about Travis, because he is such a such an adorably foot-in-my-mouth character who is really a capable, very smart, even brilliant human being. Uh, but the thing that I love about him is that he just sort of discovered that the Navy was absolutely the one place in the entire galaxy where he could have been happy. Okay? I mean, it just sort of happened. Um, and one thing uh, actually, and, and Tim, I don't think we've actually, you and I have actually discussed this, but I realized it a while back. The Star Kingdom of Manticore's Navy has a very pronounced tradition of Mustangs, of officers who began as enlisted, and the Solarian League, which they're up against, does not. Um, and in a way, I'm seeing this almost as Travis is a, a, um, a pattern that the that the that the TRMN that the RMN adopts um because they're building their navy and there're going to be a lot of him at this stage in it do you see what i'm saying yes and because of that you're going to have less ultimately less career and political appointees and you're going to start getting the real talent getting to the top yeah, now between this time and honor, you get to a point at which the aristocracy is dominating the, the Navy. You know, you have some of that dynastic corruption and watching each other's backs. But the, 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 the willingness to admit guys off the deck plates into the, into the bridge is sort of set into the RMN's DNA at this point. And Travis is a big part of that, I think. Now, Travis, you have said before, uh, and Tim has said before, even that uh, that Travis is a favorite character of 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 um, his. In that um, this sort of it, he's he's very different from Honor in that he is he really is like 
Um, although Otter, of course, is a stickler for details, he, and Travis really likes going by the rules. But at the same time, he he thinks out of the box, like Honor, in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's a weird combination. Well, okay, Tim, you you should you should take this one because you really did more of building Travis's character initially than than anybody else. Uh, I, I was building the character, but I was also in many ways living it. Uh, Travis is probably the closest thing I've ever written to my own personality. I do tend to follow the rules. I tend to, you know, I will turn off my computer when the flight attendant says to turn it off, etc. Uh, but at the same time, I would not be able to write good fiction or enjoyable fiction if I couldn't think outside the box and come up with characters who are clever. So in many mm-hmm. ways, Travis's mix is the same as I've got myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that in some ways, and we actually we talked about this while we were working on the rewrite uh, for this book, the, the editing on it. Uh, Travis, with without the ego, is more Odysseus than Achilles. Okay, um, Travis yeah, is the guy who who is thinking outside the box. You know, let's come up with the sneaky way to do this. Uh, Honor is kind of a midway house between him and um, uh, somebody like Alistair McKeon, who is a you know head down, bull in, and you know fight until somebody blows up kind of kind of mentality. So. There, we have sort of a spectrum of personality types uh, going on here, and I think that's one of the strengths of the of the uh, the Travis Long series is that it's a different Navy in a different time, and you need different people. You see what I'm saying? And it's evolving yeah. towards what we see four or five hundred years later. Uh, it's it's moving mm-hmm. it's moving in the direction, but it's it's still a process of evolution. It's a lot of fun to really explore that kind of process and and where the Navy is and how they think about things, not just technologically, but um, socially and administratively, you know, how it's built and how it's organized and, and how they're sort of culturally bu- building themselves into what they become by honor's time. Well, and, and the well, other thing that's going on here is we're building the Star Kingdom at the same time. There's constitutional crises and the evolution of the monarchy and the House of Lords all going on at the same time. Yeah, I want to ask you all about that momentarily. Um, I was getting into the story, but um, let's perhaps explore a little bit more the, the Travis's friends and his um, colleagues that he has to deal with, like Lisa and Chomps. Um, who are, who are these folks, um, and how how do they fit into the RMN? Well, Lisa was a an officer when he was just uh, a grunt on his first ship. Uh, she hauled him off to do some work that nobody was getting around to doing, and they started just working on a friendship, uh, as much of friendship as they could have since she was higher ranking than he was, and you know, travels follow, follows the rules. Chomps yeah. was another cadet with him who uh, ran afoul of something and and uh, uh, wound up 
in a place, shall we say, that no one expected anyone to go. We won't give anything away because of that. <laughs> but they were just they were just colleagues who he he wound up running into uh, as he began his career and as uh, has hung on to. Yeah. There's a well, kind was... of running joke throughout uh, called the Vengeance that Lisa is not his special Travis's special friend, right? <laughs> Well, Travis is the only one who yeah. thinks that. But yes, it's, it is true. <laughs> no, no, no. Lisa, Lisa, Lisa does too. She denies it at least once. <laughs> yeah, but Lisa is denying it. I think for public consumption, Travis is denying it for <laughs> internal consumption. Okay. Um, I, and I got to tell you, that resonated with me uh, in a way because um, when I first met Sharon. My first wife and I had been separated for a year, and I was running so scared that for eight years, it's like Sharon is my buddy, Sharon is my good friend, Sharon is my oh crap, <laughs> you know, kind of moment <laughs> when I realized that I needed to propose to my best friend. Um, so I was, I was, I was all on board with Travis for that part. I was like, you idiot, you idiot, get a move on because you know. <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, I was, I could really, really, uh, that whole thing really worked for me. One of the things about Chomps is he's actually the first Sphinxian to appear, uh, the first native born Sphinxian to appear anywhere in the universe, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a main character at any rate. Yeah. Um, oh, and by the way. Yes, but, but, yes, but now what a lot of people may not realize if they didn't read um, Shadow of Victory very carefully, is that Avar Tarakov's wife is directly descended from both Travis and Chumps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, brings up, her... that brings up another issue of that the because David, for some reason, twenty odd years ago, didn't think to include Travis in any of his books or memories of him. <laughs> Whatever Travis what accomplishes has to be, I don't know, uh, but everything Travis accomplishes has to be kind of kicked under the rug for various, usually political reasons, so that he is not known in honors day as Edward Saganami would be, for example. So yeah. we've had to to work out Travis is doing really well, and the people who he works with recognize this, but the history books really aren't going to mention him. Well, at least the Manticoran history books aren't. Well, we, there are, we do have a few things that are going for us here. For example, um, if you look at the U.S. Navy, uh, the U.S. Navy, everybody remembers John Paul Jones, okay? Less Fewer people outside the rarefied ranks of the Navy remember John Barry at all. Um, there are other officers in in the U.S. Navy. Uh, uh, Edward Truxton was huge in terms of building the professional officer corps, and the Navy's named ships after him, but nobody outside the Navy knows who he is. So we can Travis can be a very important, very influential officer during his own lifetime and simply be one of those guys who gets sort of history missed him. He went a little sideways, if you know what I'm saying. Now, it is true that he is not going to be an Honor Harrington. He's going to be more like the original 
Horatio Hornblower, uh, in the sense that Hornblower was well known throughout his lifetime. He was very successful, but he was never at any of the actual big historical battles because Forster was writing in an existing history and refused to create artificial, you know, roles for him at Trafalgar or something, uh, to, to make it work. Uh, and so Travis is going to be more of the made huge contributions, deeply respected by the core of the professional Navy of his time. And 400 years later, why did we name that building at the Academy after this guy kind of thing? You see what I'm saying? There's, there is a, on, yeah. on, on Saginaw Island, Island, there is a, um, one of the dorms, um, for incoming students is Longhouse. But most people think it's just because it's kind of long. Um, yeah. And they don't really look at the plaque buried in the back of the dusty corner of the wall. So, oh, so there was by a the quantum way, I... leak into this past somehow to transfer that to well, David's I... book. Well, well, I have to say, I have to say also another thing that's in Shadow of Victory is it turns out that uh, um, the the Long family, which is still around has a yacht that it's had for a long time, which is called the Kaiser's Gift. Um, and uh, Travis is, he and the Andromani are sort of talking to each other in the course of this book. So I'm not going to say there's any connection here, but there could be. <laughs> well, there, I mean, it's possible. One of the mechanisms you've, you've built into the book to uh, to damp down the recognition that Travis receives is the fact of his family and who he's related to. Um, he has got a weird mother and a and a <laughs> bit of a wimp of a brother, right? I mean, well, I, well, his brother brother yeah, is just um, has hooked up with his his brother is hooked up with the more anti navy side of the politics. And some of that spills over onto Travis and his uh, reputation. Yeah. Well, and also, I'll, I'll say this. One of the things that is cool to me uh, about the, the, the political context um, is that, and, and I did not necessarily envision this going in. This more grew out of Tim and, and his brother's uh, interactions and whatnot. The case for building a navy in honor Harrington's time is crystal clear. You got to have a navy when you're the biggest maritime power in the world. Um, and then you've got the threat of the Republic of Haven coming, so you have to build up. When Travis comes along, the navy is about to be pretty much abolished or built down into, well, we got some gunboats because nobody knows about the wormhole junction and battle cruisers tie up a whole lot of tonnage in one or two places when what you need is multiple search and rescue vessels. You need a Coast Guard. You don't need a Navy. And basically, the guys that Travis's brother is hooked up, are hooked up with are trying to build the Coast Guard, not the Navy. Now, they're not doing it for selfless reasons, okay? They're doing it because they're career politicians, and this is a way to do it. But their argument actually is more valid than the big Navy argument until the wormhole junction comes along. So the the politics are a lot more uh a lot more balanced than they are by honors time. Okay. Honors yeah, we've, Honors we've, Star King Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, and we've made it worked very hard to make both sides reasonable, given what they know. 
Yes. 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 In honors time, you've got an existential threat to the to the existence of the of the 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 star kingdom that everybody who doesn't have his head buried firmly in the sand can see coming. Okay, uh, Travis's time, right up until the very first attack on Manticore, or even after it, the question of do we need a navy? It's not it's not clear cut. It, 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 there's, there's, you know, like I say, if it were not for the wormhole junction, they would not have needed a navy. And as far as anybody knows, there is no wormhole junction to those rotten, nasty people in the Solarian League say, oh, we think there's a wormhole junction there. Let's go take it. <laughs> mm. But at this point, they're being attacked by these pirates that, um, that, that know something's there. Um, and they do need a navy well, and a call to vengeance. Yes, well, the pirates but they don't, don't know, know why. What's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, um, the Manticorans don't know why either. That's true. Yeah, the, the, why they're being attacked the, at this point. Break, Breakwater, right. while he may be right, is also a bit of a nasty fellow, <laughs> who is the Coast Guard, uh, who's the guy that wants to maintain the power of the Coast Guard, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay, Tom, Tim. I would have to say that Breakwater, when we first meet him, when he has not yet found himself actually losing ground to the Navy group, does isn't quite the scum-sucking bottom feeder that he becomes later on. Would you go along with that? Yeah, I think Breakwater I is self-serving, he, and he's an empire builder, yeah. but he's not wrong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no. it, he's he's got a good point at the time. Um, it, you know, given the metric he's looking at, it, it is, you know, financially more viable to build a lot of small ships that can carry a couple of box launchers each and overwhelm anybody who be, you know, who stumbles into the system. You know, for where Manticore was at the time, that's not wrong. Yeah, but what I'm what I'm saying is that my feeling is, and Tim, you know, you're actually, I pity you for this, but you're more inside Breakwater's head. <laughs> But it seems well, to he, me that he does, what we're... he does drift. To, yeah, he drifts towards the edge in the last couple of books here. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. And it and it, it's almost it's almost like and I hate to say this because Lord knows we don't need to be bringing contemporary politics into it, but it's almost like a polarization of the political process as the sides are drawn. People settle more mm -hmm. into because I said so rather than in terms of rational argument. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I agree that's with that. Their, the, their lines are drawn. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I really like about this series is the fact that the, pol the politics are evolving on a domestic front on a domestic scale because the nature of the external threat is unknown. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because they yeah. don't, they can't point and say, well, it's the Andermani, it's the Havenites, it's the this. There's a, an amorphousness to the threat that's being faced that lets the politics, the domestic politics, I think, be more interesting than they would be otherwise. In the Honorverse, there is domestic political fighting in Honor's time and whatnot, but the crux of the politics are, inter, are interstellar. And here, they're inter, intrasystemic, 
if you follow the distinction mm-hmm. I'm making. Yeah. Well, what? Tell and me and I think more... a situation. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Tim. Uh, we, we have the situation where uh, there are patterns starting to come out of the assaults and the threats against Maticor, but they're not, as David says, so clear-cut as they are in honors time. You can mm-hmm. Everybody can look at the same data and draw different conclusions more or less reasonably. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yep. Because, because everybody, everybody is trying to analyze very limited data sets. Um, and because of that, you know, analysts mirror image. They have to. If they don't have data, they say, well, okay, well, why would I be doing this? And if you have different analysts, they come up with different mirror images. Um, and that's part of what's going on with the, with, with the Star Kingdom here. Um, and then you have cranked in on top of the, 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 okay, who's out there and why are they trying to do nasty to us? You have this evolving domestic political uh, situation in which just to make the Mantis' lives perfect, you know, we, we, we completely screw up the succession. Before you give away anything that happens in the book, um, <laughs> tell us, tell us um, uh, what, how does the constitutional monarchy work, and what's the line of succession as we begin, and what what might screw that up? When well, we start the book, we have Edward Winton as the king. Um, his his father Michael has abdicated, um, and his son Richard was killed in the um, Battle of Manticore. So his his daughter Sophie is is the next in line for the throne. Um, yeah, Edward boy, didn't really want the throne. Oh, does she not want to be? Nor did her father, really, not at the time. Um, nor did really her grandfather. Uh, it was really the Roger and uh, Roger Winton and her, his daughter Elizabeth were the founders, and they were both of them were a hundred percent on board. You know, they created the monarchy together. Um, when Roger died, Elizabeth took over and and built an incredibly, you know, sort of built on what her father had made and strengthened yeah, let the me, monarchy let and strengthened me. the Star Kingdom. Let let me throw yeah, something in here. Um, initially, the Star Kingdom was not a kingdom at all. Uh, it was uh, an elective um, uh, republic uh, in 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 many respects, uh, consisting of the shareholders in the original expedition. When the plague came through and nearly wiped out the colony, they realized they were going to have to import a lot of warm bodies to save it. And the the surviving original shareholders and their kids set out to create an explicit aristocracy, which would control the balance of power in the Star Kingdom and would consist of them. And that was how they were going to avoid losing control of their colony when they brought in all these immigrants from everywhere. So the the original constitution is definitely skewed in favor of the House of Lords as opposed to the House of Commons, whose members are elective. And neither Roger nor Elizabeth Winton really liked the extent to which the aristocrats were given their their bite. Their, their hold on power, but they recognized that this was the only way they were going to get the rest of the board of directors to sign up on bringing in the colonists they needed, so they had to accept it. One of the key provisions of the Constitution that the Wintons insisted upon, and which 
provoke, promotes a lot of the tension in this book, is that the heir to the crown must marry outside the aristocracy, must marry a commoner. And there were a lot of reasons for this, but this is a, it's a fundamental core requirement of the Constitution. But the monarchy that the Wintons intended to build from the get-go wasn't the one that the House of Lords thought they were going to build. And this sets up a tension which continues all the way down to Honors Day in the government of the Star Kingdom. Now, by honors time, there are a lot of things that have been ironed out. There are traditions in place. But even as late as Honor Harrington's time, the Constitution requires that the prime minister must come from the lords and cannot come from the commons because of the, the, the way the Constitution was skewed in the aristocracy's favor to begin with. So I just wanted to kind of get that run out as the, the, the foundation that the current monarch's problems rest on in this book. Yeah. Well, what are, so Sophie is a daredevil crazy kid who, who'd rather be climbing mountains or flying uh, hang gliders. Um, and she's sort of mentored by Elizabeth, her aunt. What is Elizabeth's take on um, the monarchy, which becomes rather important? In the book, <laughs> Tim. Oh, she's you know the, the, they're her family. She thinks uh, you know her brother and her niece are are both nuts for liking the daredevil stuff. Uh, she is coming off of a uh, the the death of her husband a few years ago. So um, the whole thing, and, and of course uh, Richard, uh, the king's son also died oh, just a few months ago in the in the attack on Manticore. So there's and, plenty of family pain to go around at this point. Yeah. Well, and also, Elizabeth's husband was killed in a big game hunting accident, and I think that impacts some of her attitude towards why do you want to do these crazy things. Yeah. 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 So, um, so there's a, there is something that goes on with that as well that, that forms a... a a big part of the book that is um, cool and um, and intricate and, and a lot of action to do with that. Um, but can we talk about the space battles a little bit? So, missiles, lasers, or torpedoes? Go. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> One of the reasons why I'm so happy to have Tim and Tom involved in writing this book, uh, these books, is that you need for the technology to not only be much less capable, but it needs to be in a chain of development that will make what happens by honors time reasonable. Um, and uh, Tom has been uh, the, the lead uh, on that, and I think he has done uh, a, a marvelous job. I mean, he and I have talked about stuff, and I had some concepts about it, but in terms of turning it into a uh, coherent and developed um, uh, bag of, of, um, of, of warfighting technology, uh, I think he's really done a good job. Uh, Tom, you want to talk about some of the the differences between honors time and Travis's? 
I think the main difference we're looking at right now is um, the the fact that these these warships are comparatively fragile compared to honors time, uh, where where the ranges are very much lower. Uh, the missiles all have, you know, there's no laser heads like in honors time. The missiles all have contact nukes, um, and really the war, you know, you 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 fire missiles off and you hope one gets through because if one does get through, just one, it's it's going to be a, a kill on a smaller ship and even a mission kill on a larger ship, and that really mm-hmm. you're looking at a environment that's a lot more like the naval battles, you know, sort of Cold War and and modern naval warfare, where you really you have this sort of pulse model of warfare where you're trying to get everything off as soon as possible because you want to overwhelm their defenses and get that one hit as opposed to honors time where you still have to worry about over overwhelming their defenses but it's more of a salvo model like a, a gunfire model where you're smashing into the other ship and they're smashing you over and over again in Travis's time the first hit you know the first effective hit is going to win you know, it's going to it's going to kill the the opponent. And if you've got a squadron of ships, if you can fire first and you can fire effectively, um, you could get away without any damage to yourself and almost completely wipe out the enemy. So it really changes the the way they think about combat. Um, the fact that we don't have sidewall gun ports um, and the sidewalls are comparatively more powerful, um, in that the missiles have tr- more trouble getting through them, means you're often fighting nose-to-nose, you're crossing your own T all the time because the broadside doesn't exist yet. Uh, so it really does yeah. change. It changes the tactics. It changes the the way they think about combat, the way that, that the pace of combat. Um, yeah, you're dealing a lot more cus- with Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say we're at the, at the cusp of a change there, uh, and that's what becomes really interesting looking at the at the, the sort of the, the path of the Travis novels is figuring out how fast that change is happening and how much we'll see, how much Travis will end up seeing of of the evolution of naval warfare. We're going to see some of it as, as Travis gets older, he'll see little bits of it, sort of pieces poking through of, of what you would recognize, what a, a modern honorverse reader would recognize as sort of the, the classic warfare in the books. And Travis is going to be uh, a play a fundamental role in that evolution. But by honors time, you see the transition that's taking place in Travis's time fully mature. And it's actually been the status quo for a hundred years or so. And by the end of like the current, the, the, the honor novel that will be coming out um, this fall, um, you're almost back to the pulse model. Uh, because of the introduction mm-hmm. of the missile pod and the extreme ranges at which you can engage. Uh, it's no yeah. longer a case of if you get a single hit through, you can take the ship out. It's that you can fire so many thousands of missiles that you're going to get hundreds of hits through. Um, and so even a really tough ship can be basically torn apart in an eye blink by one of these massive missile salvos because they're tightly synchronized and the ship may be hit by literally dozens or even hundreds of of bomb-pumped grazers, x-ray lasers, that are each powerful enough to blast through a super dreadnought's armor. So in a way, you're almost back to it. Um, and um, it's it, it, to me, one of the things that to me is is... Uh, fundamental to good military science fiction um, is that it has to deal with the evolution of the tactical and the strategic environment. 
And that's one of the things I tried to do in the Honor Harrington novels, and it's something that Tim and Tom are doing really, really well in building backwards, as it were, to the to the Travis model. It's going to be interesting to see as as we reach the end of the or not the end, but sort of the, the peak of that style of combat in the modern Honorverse. As we're also talking in the books, we're reaching the point where I mean, this is actually. Right now, in Trav, you know, and right now for Travis, um, Gustav Andermann is writing his book, Sternenkrieg, um, where he mm-hmm. talks about a lot of this sort of, you know, how his views on warfare. And it's, it's a, it's a sprawling book that covers all, all aspects. But I could see, I could see Honor's contemporaries and Honor herself rereading that book and seeing a lot of parallels in terms mm-hmm. of the tactics of, of warfare that haven't been true for hundreds of years that are becoming true again. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that in the honor verse in, in honors time, they're also going to be looking for ways to mitigate the, the, you know, for opening salvo wins, uh, model. And they have a few notions about how this, how this might happen. Um, but it is, it is a lot of fun from the writer's perspective to be able to play with with how this is going to evolve and change and the extent to which the warfighting technology informs the views of the tacticians and the extent to which the views of the tacticians drive the development of the warfighting technology. Uh, that was one of the big um, conflicts between Sanja Hemphill and um, um, Alexander, uh, Hamish Alexander, uh, early on in the Honorverse books because they were in this live-or-die situation and they were both afraid to go all in on the other side's approach, if you see what I'm saying. So, so I, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here being amused by David talking about throwing thousands of missiles. In Travis's time, <laughs> they might as well be made of platinum because you can't even use them for, for practice. They're that big and expensive, and we don't have very many of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, your yeah, magazines when, don't have very many in them either. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is a it is a very different model, and it's it's it has been really mm-hmm. it's it's been a, a a fun exercise for me because I I sort of building building these models of combat and these models of technology for different time slices of the honorverse. Travis is the one that I spent the most time in uh, after honors, um, but I've been looking mm-hmm. at other chunks as well, and I'm sort of doing this like David has you know he's written 20 books and he casually tosses out in such and such a date, such and such a thing happened. And it's just sort of, you know, it, it sounds like a good time, a good date at the time. And then one thing I like about working with David is he thinks about these things. He doesn't really completely arbitrarily toss them off, but he's still a writer and he can't, can, you know, he, he doesn't make an, an entire timeline map when he does that in terms of saying when the gunport existed. But that's yeah. in the book. And, you know, and we sort of, and we have those anchor points. And for me, it's actually, in some ways, the constraints on on the design or the constraints on my work are actually liberating for me because I can sort of put those in as anchors. And then all I have to do mm-hmm. is figure out how do I get from point A to point B. And sometimes they're weird. Uh, and it and it tells <laughs> stories. I mean, the, the stories that, that Tim and David tell are, you know, prose and, and they can, you know, they write about people and they write, you know, they, they, they write stories that people want to read. The stories that I tell often have spreadsheets and, and columns and numbers and things like that. Um, but there are interesting stories in there that I can, I can 
add to this process simply because I discover little things as I'm doing that, like, wow, you know, we don't have grab plates now, but we really should. And so there's got to be an interesting reason why we don't. Uh, and yeah. so that's been a, a fascinating part of this process for me is figuring out how to make that kind of thing work from dates that have just sort of scattered around. Well, uh, to me, it's important when you're building a literary universe that it have solid underpinnings. You're going to have to use, you know, the right isotope of unobtainium or whatever in, in different places in it because you're writing science fiction and they need to be able to do interstellar travel. Okay, well, that's going to be a problem, you know, uh, with what we currently can model uh, on terms of our understanding of the physics of the of the universe. but within that constraint, there have got to be limitations as well as opportunities. There have to be things you can't do as well as things you can. Uh, and the characters have to work around uh, those, those, uh, those limitations. That was part one of a two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, discussing their new entry in the Manticore Ascendant series, A Call to Vengeance. Part two of the interview will be available next time on the podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 26 Langlast Port, the Torridon Hotel The short tour from the happy occasion to the hotel was like... It was like a public day at some other house's gardens, Patty thought. One met only friends and agreeable acquaintances, and only glad subjects were discussed. The flowers, the weather, perhaps one's new coat, or a piece of Quinn's jewelry. Of course, public day at one's own house was rather less agreeable, for it always occurred on a day for which one had received several pleasant invitations, which, of course, had to be turned down in favor of welcoming strangers into the gardens 
strolling among them to point out the best flowers or an exceptionally clever bit of topiary, and of course, the refreshment trays. Not very much different now that she actually traversed the path from the duties of a host of a trade reception. The merchants they called briefly upon, no more than five minutes each, so as not, father said, to wear out their welcome on the very first pass, seemed not to find them a burden. Indeed, there were smiles and exchanges of info keys and pleasant things said on both sides. Two wished the master trader to return on another day when they might talk at more depth. One prentice was desolate that his own master had not been able to be present when the traders called. She offered an info key, saying the master would be pleased to meet the traders at their convenience any time inside the next two day, if their stay on port would accommodate it. And so they progressed with the hotel in sight and only two more shops between them and the entrance. Patty sighed to herself. She was enjoying herself immensely. Though whether she had learned anything would need to wait upon review. Though their progress was interesting, not just for the illustration of what an announcement in the port news, a direct letter to everyone listed in the Langlest Port Merchant Association and a reception might do to create a favorable impression, it remained to be learned whether the favorable impression translated into equally favorable negotiations and concluded deals. She was just as happy to leave those discoveries for the morrow and the day after. Her head had begun to ache again, which she thought might be a lack of food. While there had certainly been sufficient food at the reception, she had felt it her duty to at least introduce herself to each guest and direct them to the refreshment tables. At the beginning, also, she had been nervous regarding the arrangements, but really, Ms. Hartensis had managed beautifully and produced a buffet reception that even Cousin Corrine must have pronounced unexceptional. In any case, she had rather stupidly not eaten anything, other than the samples, though she had managed a glass or two of the red juice, which had been very agreeable, though perhaps, in retrospect, a little sweet. They strolled into the second but last shop, a gem and jewelry emporium. The ample light was pure, and drawers of gemstones gleamed and glittered behind security crystal displays. Patty narrowed her eyes against the excessive brightness as a tall and willowy person came out from behind the counter to bow gracefully to them. Surprisingly, it was a full Leaden bow between business associates. Master trader, trader, welcome to my establishment. I am Tarona Rusk, and this... A graceful motion of the hand drew their attention to the glittering displays, is the Garden of Gems. Tarona Rusk spoke the high tongue with an accent, but her mode did not falter. Also, as between business associates, 
which was perhaps a little forward, thought Patty, as they had concluded no business, but which also showed a willingness to proceed in an association. Father bowed, and Paddy did. Forgive me, Father said upon straightening. I had not expected to hear the language of home here on Langlast. I hope I have not offended. Indeed, no, merely a surprise, and that not unpleasant at the end of a long day. I wonder, did you perhaps attend the University of Solcintra? Tarona Rusk laughed gently. No, scholar, I, she said, raising a hand. Always it was the stones with me and the fabrication of settings which might be worthy of them. Another small bow. I had the honor to sit as Moonell's prentice in the Avenue of Jewels at Solcintra Port. I'll wager he drove you harder than any professor, father said. Doubtless he did, and why not? Should I waste the master's time and generosity by shirking my lessons or creating that which was less than inspired? May I ask, how fares Moonell? Still at work in the Avenue of Jewels? Father sighed and bowed gently as the bearer of unfortunate news. I regret, Moonell has gone ahead doubtless to fashion more perfect settings for the stars. The shop in the Avenue of Jewels stood empty when last I was on Solcintra Port. Ah, the jeweler bowed her head and swayed somewhat. When she looked up, her eyes were damp, but her face was properly smooth. It grieves me to hear it, though it ought be no surprise. One likes to recall those who illuminated one's life as unchanged and ever-continuing. But it is, as you say, he has doubtless embraced a higher art, which we mere students hold no hope of comprehending. There was a small pause so that they might admire the phrase before the jeweler spoke again. Do you make a long stay here on Langless Port? A few days, perhaps as long as a local week. Tomorrow's tour will tell the tale. Of course, please, allow me to offer you this. An info key was proffered. Father took it gracefully and offered his in turn. My thanks. For now, let me not keep you longer from your rest. Come again before you leave us. It would please me if we could identify a mutual benefit. We will, of course, come again, Father promised. And with that, they sought the door. Vessel approaching, Dilnem said firmly from the pilot's chair. Langlast portmaster identification. He did not say that this meant nothing. The three ships that had pursued Pale Wing had, after all, been able to show an affiliation, however tenuous, with legitimate Liltander security. Priscilla frowned at the screens over the third mate's shoulder. The approaching vessel looked to be a working ship of some kind. Scans showed armament, two small guns, and very little armor. Port ID, 
Query their purpose for approach, she said. Dilnem did that, nodded, and glanced over his shoulder to Priscilla. Customs boat, Captain. They state routine flyby and advise that we will see them at intervals. A pause. They will release camera drones and magnetometers. This is standard procedure. Port database confirms ID, said pilot Jorick on comm. Priscilla nodded. Log them, she said. Aye, Captain, said Jorick. All occasions? All occasions. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the tribute of one-fifth of the produce from 27 reconstructed Dyson spheres rising to feudalism after the fall of star empires and galactic futures exchanges, plus the thanks and praise of readers versed in honor everywhere to David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, authors of A Call to Vengeance. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 